0: Welcome to the OCC Podcast. Whether you're listening to this at home, on the road, at work, or in the gym, we're so glad you decided to join us as we study God's Word together. We hope and pray that through this ministry, you will grow in your relationship with God, as well as become a Chair disciple maker. But for now, sit back and let us help you see how the Bible applies to your life today. Hey, it's weird, isn't it? It's not Easter, and We're here at church. Because that's something we're supposed to do. It's great. It's fantastic to celebrate Easter. And we had a wonderful time. That was wonderful. It really was. But, but the idea is that we don't live on this event theory of life. The calendar dictates the things we do. After Easter, we come back because there's still work to do, right? We're going to continue to join God. We're going to continue to be ambassadors. We're going to continue to worship in song. And that was beautiful to hear you guys do that. And we're going to continue to relationally connect. And we're going to continue to study. Because that's something we do together so we can grow and mature. So if you have your Bible, grab that. We're going to jump back into our walk through the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to study a passage today that is honestly a little confusing, okay? Just want to be super transparent up front. This is Luke 21, verses 5 to 24, if you have an outline with you. Here's the deal about the Bible, okay? Every part of it, 100% of it, is true, but not every part of it is 100% clear, okay? Some passages are just trickier to study. And we want to study them well because we want to come away with the correct interpretation because that leads us to probably the most important step, which is living it, applying it in our lives day to day. And this chapter, the entirety of Luke chapter 21, I remember when I went to seminary, they say this might be the most debated chapter in all the Bible. There's a whole lot of views on what Jesus is talking about with some of the things he's mentioning today. Now, I think I I get this enormous privilege to stand up and teach God's word to you. And so I want to be clear about the things the Bible is clear about. And I still want to allow some freedom for us to have discussion, have dialogue about things that maybe we're not 100% clear about that aren't salvation issues, okay? We've got to be together on the salvation issues. There's room for us to actually hear differing viewpoints and learn and grow in that. And so I hope that we'll be able to do that today. I hope we'll recognize some passages truly are confusing in God's Word. And some of it might be because of the wording. We're reading a translation Sometimes trying to get it to move from the Hebrew to Greek is hard. Sometimes it's hard because the cultural difference between when it was written and where we live now. And sometimes, and I'm not saying you guys do this, but I know I've done this before. Sometimes we go, well, that passage is confusing because we don't like what it says, It's just too hard and we don't want to do it. So we say it's confusing. I don't think that's always the case, right? So I hope what we'll do today is commit to study and learning, growing. And maybe we'll wind up in a different place than where we started out coming in. I know the Bible is not meant to confuse us. I know sometimes it does. I heard a story one time. I don't know if this story is true or not, but if it is, it's one of the funniest stories I've ever heard. Sometimes we confuse people we don't mean to whatsoever. Apparently, when Ronald Reagan was the 40th president of these United States, he was there in the White House for two terms, but as he was nearing the end of his second term, he had met a guy. He'd met a guy who worked in the White House named Neil Martin, who conducted the White House tours, Right? You can go to the White House and get one of those tours. They walk you around and show you all the stuff. You don't get to go like in the Oval Office or anything, but you get to see a lot of the stuff. And so Neil Martin, he'd worked at the White House for a long time, and and he was really a sharp guy, very witty, very funny. And Reagan really liked him. And so they kind of became friends, you know. And so Neil Martin got really sick one winter, like really sick, like wound up in the hospital for a couple months kind of sick, really kind of touch and go. And and, and so the president was concerned about him, and, and Neil Martin, praise the Lord, he got better. Returned to his job. And the first day he was back at the White House conducting one of these White House tours and there's, you know, folks wandering through the the big halls and everything. And and this doesn't happen often because they keep a pretty tight leash on the president. But Ronald Reagan just happened to be walking out in the halls. He's moving from one meeting to another. And and so the tour group sees him and they're like, oh, you know, and pointing and gasping and everything. And so Reagan, you know, waves because you're not going to be rude to people. And, And so he's waving at this tour group and he sees Neil Martin, right? He sees his friend, Neil Martin, leading this group. Well, now Reagan wants to go talk to him, wants to see him, because he's interested in how he's doing. And so President Ronald Reagan looks at this tour group, and he yells, Neil, in a loud voice. And everybody goes, Pff. he meant Neil Martin. He didn't mean Neil as in bow down and worship the president. And, and, but that's confusing, right? We I mean, understand why they do that. As we're studying, we've got to remember, sometimes it's not designed to be confusing, but it can be confusing for us. Now, one of the things that'll help us as we study, and this is just for me as an example, I wear bifocals, right? Because I'm old and can't see. Now, bifocals are super helpful because they help you see things in the distance and they help you see things close up. For those of you who are bifocals wearers, the person who gave me my glasses is sitting right here. (laughs) But now in that, I'm, I'm a pretty recent bifocal wearer, I was desperately holding on to just using reading glasses for the longest time, right? I didn't want to make that plunge and get bifocals. And and so when I first came to church here about seven years ago, I was holding on to those reading glasses and I'd wear them in my office, but then I wouldn't wear them when I was up here because I I wanted to be able to see you guys. When I was wearing the reading glasses, I couldn't see your beautiful faces, so to compensate, I would print my sermon notes in a size 24 font, (laughs) like 50 pages of notes, and that was how I was getting by, right, and and so I remember before I even moved here, the first time I was going to preach here, I wrote this sermon back in Missouri still, we hadn't moved here yet, and I emailed it to the guy who was running AV for us at the time to make all the slides and everything, and I emailed him this 50-page thing in 24 font, and he emailed back, and it was so funny, are you bifocal curious, he said. Like, would you be interested? <laughs> no. And I fired him. I thought that was, no. <laughs> it's Dan Thorson. You know, Dan's still here in the church. He moved on to other things. I did make a habit of firing Dan in every staff meeting, but I'd hire him back at the end of the meeting. I might bring him back just to fire him again. But, but here's the deal, right? When we're looking at this passage, we need our study bifocals because there are going to be some things in this passage that are up close, right? There are things that are happening like in that day when Jesus is walking. Or they're happening within like a 40-year window of when Jesus was there telling this story. But there's some things in this story that are in the far, far away bucket, okay? There's some things in this story that I think are about when Jesus returns. And that was 2,000 years from when this was written, and we still don't know for sure <laughs> when he's coming back, right? So we need the study bifocals to see far, far in the distance there. Some things up close, some things far away. Some of the events we're going to see are going to happen right at that time. Some of the events are about a thing called eschatology. It's the study of the last things. It's the details surrounding Christ's return. And eschatological discussions are fun to have because those are the ones where we can go, well, I think it's this and I think it's that, and we can agree to disagree, right? We can have some fun talking about those things as long as we do agree on the fact that he's coming back. That's where we have to plant our flag. So as we walk through this passage, I want to focus on the things that I think are clear. I want to focus on the things that are supposed to be our big takeaways. And if you grabbed an outline coming in, you'll see the title of this sermon. Oftentimes, the the struggles we have, the trials we go through, the tragedies we encounter in this life, they provide us the best opportunities. I don't know if we think about it that way, but I believe it's true. That's true from the big picture context that we see that brings us up to this point. When we encounter Jesus here, he was on his way to Jerusalem. He is headed towards the cross. Now, we stopped and got out of order because we celebrated Easter, right? We we went to the end of that story. We know how it ends. But this is back now actually before is he's on his way to the cross. But because we studied this over the last couple weeks, we know that looks like a horrible tragedy on paper. The guy's going to the cross to be crucified, But since we know the end of that story, we realize that singular event, that created the opportunity for the hope for the entire world. But it was still a tragedy. It was still a trial. We're going to encounter those in this life. And when we do, it doesn't mean God is against us. It doesn't mean Jesus is not with us. Those trials actually teach us the opposite. One of the passages in the Bible that some people might say Or confusing, I used to think this one was confusing, but I just realized it's probably the toughest passage in the whole Bible, but it's pretty clear. James chapter one, look with me, verses two and four, James writes this, easy stuff. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Be joyful in your trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result. Why, James? So that you may be perfect and complete Lacking in nothing. Now, is that really confusing? Or is that just hard to do? The worst tragedies, I think the hardest trials in our lives, they can produce the best opportunities for us to quit trusting in ourselves. Proverbs say, lean not on your own understanding. Lean in on the Lord, right? Trials help us do that. When we see how God is at work in our trials, we can go boldly share that testimony. And other people can make that choice to follow the Lord. They receive eternal life. But listen, that life is not a trouble-free life. I think that's one of the biggest lies that Satan tries to tell us. Well, see, you trusted in Jesus and your life's hard still. You trusted in Jesus and you have all these issues, so Jesus must not be real. Jesus must not love you. (laughs) That's not the case. The reality is Jesus loves us enough to allow us to go through the trials. Now, I'll be 100% honest, I don't like that. Sometimes he'll place us in trials so we can learn this lesson, so we can grow that endurance that he longs for us to develop, for endurance to have its perfect result, for me to become more like Jesus. I I don't like it. I love it, but I don't like it. The Bible does promise believers peace and joy. It does not promise us the absence of trials. It does not promise us freedom from death, freedom from persecution. No, instead, it says we're going to get joy in the midst of those things, in the midst of our struggles. I know that's difficult. That's a confusing backdrop for this passage today, and it's why we're in the study bifocals will kind of help us out. So dive in. If you have your Bible with you, Luke 21, starting at verse 5. If not, we'll have it on the Sky Bible. Luke writes this. And while some were talking about the temple that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, Jesus said this. Now let's press pause to set this scene. Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple, right? And the temple was amazing. It was this magnificent structure. From everything we read about in history, it was incredible. And so one of the disciples just makes an offhand comment about it. If you read Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, he tells us a lot about the temple. He said the stones that were used for the foundation were over 35 feet long, 12 feet high and 18 feet wide. These were massive stones. Part of the Wailing Wall that's still there in Jerusalem is made up of these stones that were there. And then they piled them. I don't even know how they did it. On top of one another. And this temple rose up to 200 feet above the Kidron Valley. And there were these white stones like marble. And they had gold trim interlaid between them. And so the sun would rise and hit these white stones with that gold overlay. And it's just dazzling. If you've seen pictures of it, I'd love to see it in person. It's incredible. The courtyard for the temple was 400 yards by 500 yards. Think four football fields by five football fields. That was the courtyard for the temple. They made it that big so that people could come and worship there. It's spectacular. I mean, just a feat of architectural and design excellence. It was breathtaking. And so Jesus and his guys are leaving the temple and one of them goes offhand. Man, this thing is incredible, right? And Jesus goes all in. He totally shocked them. He drops this... Long soliloquy about the fact that the world seems to be spinning out of control. In the world, there's going to be tragedies all around us. But we can rejoice because we know God is still in control. It's not confusing. It's just hard to remember. Starting at verse 6. As for these things, which you're looking at, Jesus is talking about the magnificence of the temple building. He says, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. Can you imagine that they're looking at this 200 foot tall thing with these huge stones piled on top of one another? He says, they're gonna be torn down. And they questioned him as they would. Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will the sign be when these things are about to take place? And Jesus said, see to it that you're not misled, For many will come in my name saying, I am he. Saying things like, the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified. For these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. He paints a little more of this picture, verse 10. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be great earthquakes, and in various places, plagues and famines. There'll be terrors and great signs from heaven. Oh, my goodness. Do we need our our bifocals here? Because some of these things Jesus mentions are events that are going to take place before the temple was destroyed, which we know from studying history took place in 70 A.D., But some of these things, and and many of the things Jesus is getting ready to mention, are things that are going to happen sometime before Jesus comes back. (laughs) So that could be a long way from right here, right? And we can have a fun discussion about what these references entail. We, We can have the whole sermon be about that. We can probably preach several sermons about that. But those things aren't as clear. I want us to focus on what's clear here or the actual fall of Jerusalem, the actual destruction of the temple, those are foreshadowing judgments that are going to occur when Jesus returns. And certainly, some of these notions can apply to both circumstances. There were nations that rose up against nations back then, and we know for sure today <laughs> there are still nations <laughs> rising up against nations, right? We get that. There were earthquakes and disasters back then. They're still happening today. Jesus starts by saying that even though we're going to hear people claiming to be Jesus— even though there's chaos and confusion, wars and rumors of wars, natural disasters, sickness, we don't have to buy into those things that cause all the chaos and confusion. Those circumstantial things that do happen, they don't have to derail us from following hard after God. Here's the bottom line. Back then, God was. Right now, God is. In the future, God always will be in control. Amen? He's sovereign over all things. That's the strong truth that should give us peace as we study this passage. It should help us to understand when Jesus is talking about trials and tragedies, we have to endure those things. Why? To become stronger. That's how we grow. That's how we mature. Great theological movie that I saw one time really impacted me. I don't know if you guys saw it or not. It's called Finding Nemo. It's a really really spiritually deep movie. I don't know if you ever caught it or not. Nemo gets taken by a scuba diver and he goes to Australia, which is a nice vacation for him. He meets some lovely people. But his dad is really worried about him, right? As a dad would be about his son. And Nemo's got kind of a gimpy fin. And, and so his dad, Marlon, has always tried to protect him. And so Nemo gets taken and Marlin sets out on this huge adventure to go rescue his son. And on his way, he meets this kind of dim-witted fish, this delay fish, Dory. And, and, and he's sharing the story about how he wants to protect his son and how he's looking for his son. And he says this to Dory. He says, I promised I'd never let anything happen to him. And even a fish as slow-witted as Dory says, well, that's pretty stupid. How's he going to learn if nothing ever happens to him? Do we think that's why God might allow some of the trials in our lives? So we can learn from those things? Th- those things are the testing ground. Those things are the fertile soil that help us grow. They're not fun, I'll give you that. But they're necessary. And we can know from studying God's word. His word promises us. In the midst of all those things that seem like chaos, seem like confusion for us, God's still sovereign. He's still in control always. But this is a tough passage, I'll give you that. And Jesus continues, and he's not pulling any punches now. He starts talking about personal persecution that we will experience going to happen to those who follow Christ, starting in verse 12. But before all these things, he's talking about nation against nation, natural disaster, sickness. Before all that, they're going to lay hands on you and will persecute you. Delivering you to the synagogues and prisons. Bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. Now, I love this because remember what I said, the tragedies lead to opportunities. Verse 13, it will lead to an opportunity for your Testimony. You'll get to share your story of how God was with you in these trials, in these tragedies. Verse 14, so make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. For I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But it's gonna be bad. You'll be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and they'll put some of you to death. And you'll be hated by all because of my name. I love verse 18, yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, the fact that we face trials, that's pretty easy to see here, right? I don't think that could be more apparent. The much harder part for me is figuring out what Jesus is talking about when he says not a hair of our head will perish. Many hairs on my head have perished. I promise you that. Through endurance, we're going to gain our lives. That's what he says. Is he talking about the faraway bucket? Is he talking about things that are going to be really, really far in the distance? Even though Christ's followers will die physically in these mortal bodies, we're going to live for eternity with God in heaven? That could be the meaning. I'll give you that. Or is he talking about the close-up bucket? Is he talking about while all these things are going on, you're supposed to stand firm when persecution happens? Because some folks, when persecution comes, they don't share their testimony. They don't tell people about their faith when the persecution comes. And the Bible tells us many times, we are supposed to stand firm. So I can see where both of those could be real here. That's why this is open for dialogue. But again, I think the major emphasis for application here, before Jesus is going to return to answering the original question about the temple in these last few verses, I think it's abundantly clear. Jesus knows everything that's going to happen. In the entirety of history, before it actually does. That's kind of mind boggling. Do we think about that? And so I don't think Christ's purpose here is to try and satisfy every bit of curiosity we have about when things are going to happen or what's going to happen during the end times. I think this is supposed to be application based. I think he's writing this to encourage faith in the people who are reading at that time and to encourage faith in us as we're living in this today. We live in a world that, be honest, looks like it's spinning out of control. It's spinning fast sometimes. But God is still in control. God has not released control. He's not going to do it. And so to me, this passage becomes about God instilling assurance in us that he's still in control during chaos and confusion. Because actually, from his viewpoint, there is no chaos or confusion. Nothing happens in this world that happens that would surprise God read all through the gospel accounts, and so many times Jesus is telling the disciples about the fact he's going to die, right? He keeps telling them over and over, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to the cross. They don't want to believe it, but he knows what's going to happen. He tells them about it beforehand. He knows false teachers are going to come, claiming to be him. He tells people beforehand. He knows about future persecution of Christ's followers. That's happening right now, but he tells us beforehand. This is where our personal theology gets the work out today. Because if we go on record saying, okay, I get it, James. God knows in advance everything that's ever going to happen. Then aren't we just one step away from saying, well, God then ordains everything that will ever happen. Do we use that term ordains correctly? We think of it now as we're granting someone pastoral authority or we're commissioning someone. You hear about someone being ordained in the church. The root of that word from the Bible is just the word Order. That's the big takeaway here. God is not a God of chaos and confusion. He's a God of what? Order. And logically, he orders things to take place. And if we're real honest, maybe I won't put that on you, if I'm real honest, I struggle with that sometimes. I get it, but I struggle with it. Because of the circumstances, the things that we see. There's a huge clue to this in verse 9. And we went through it so quick, we might not have caught it. I want to return there. Luke 21, verse 9. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified. Why? For these things must take place first. But the end does not follow immediately. These things have to happen. Why? Because God's in control. And he's ordering it that way. Do we ever stop to think about that? God sovereignly chose the nation of Israel as his people before the beginning of time as we know it. God sovereignly chooses people. He predestines is the word the Bible uses. People are gonna follow him. Now this is where the rubber meets the road for the vast majority of us because we look at this fallen world that is all around us and we see evil happening all over the place and we have a hard time reconciling it. it. Seems to do this for us. How can a perfect holy God use evil in this world to accomplish his plan and his purpose are you picking up what i'm putting down that's the question right almost every christ follower i've ever talked to wrestles with that and they end up kind of in a weird spot and i understand why we go there well is god responsible for evil he ordains everything we know evil stuff happens did god ordain that evil I think it's a real dilemma for us as Christ followers because our minds just can't go there, right? We're so finite, our human mind can't rationalize this notion. I know people who have tried to to reconcile this difficult concept. I've probably said this before. We just blame everything that happens on Satan, right? Well, the devil made me do it, right? And I get that that preaches, but I don't think it's accurate. Do we understand what we'd be saying if that was accurate? We'd say the devil has the ability to do things that are outside of God's control, The devil can make me do things that are outside of God's order. If the devil could do that, wouldn't that make him every bit as powerful as God? Wouldn't there then be a chance he could upset the whole apple cart? God's plan to reconcile people back to himself? I don't think the devil made me do it is true at all. (laughs) I think that's another lie that Satan wants us to believe. When we study the entirety of God's word, we see this. The power that Satan has Limited power for a finite period of time in this fallen world, God gives to him. God allows him to show that, but only for a short while. We do not have the time to study through it today, but it's a good read. But if you want some homework, read the book of Job on your own this week, because that tells you that story. In that account, the devil can only poke at Job as much as God allows. God is in control even over the devil. God is in control even over all the evil things that the devil does. Now, again, in in our humanness, I think our next natural conclusion becomes, well, if God not only knows everything in advance, but he ordains everything that happens, then I'm saying he's responsible for evil. And I get why our sinful minds go there. I've wrestled with that question myself many, many times before. Now, here's where I've landed, and I'm going to share it with you free of charge completely by God's plan, from what I see in his word, I think he 100% does ordain all things. And I think he is 100% not responsible for evil. Now, some of you just moved up on your seat and go, well, how does that work, right? (laughs) Can you explain that one for me, Pastor James? Here's the beauty of it. I don't have to try and make the case for it because scripture does. I think this is what scripture teaches. The beautiful thing is if we study it, we'll see it. If God were responsible for evil, just think about this practically, then he'd have zero right to judge our evil actions, right? If he were responsible for it when it came time for us to be judged, we'd just say, well, I just did what you ordained, God. You're the one who told me to do it. And that's not the way this works. But that does highlight something that's really flawed in us. Whenever anything goes wrong, we are very, very quick to blame somebody else. When something comes up, we like to shift that blame. In our sinfulness, that's what we do. But there's a verse in Acts, Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. I want us to see this. Even though God ordained the death of Jesus on the cross, we know that story. We just studied at Easter. We know God sent him to the cross. Even though God ordained it, it was the folks who did the nailing. It was the folks who shouted, free Barabbas, crucified Jesus. Those are the ones who are actually to blame. If we're going to play the blame game, we've got to get it right. Acts 2.23 say, this man, talking about Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You ready for this? You nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men. If we read this in the Greek, they'd put the pronoun back in again, and you put him to death. Okay, now remember I, I love you guys, right? I tell you that at the end of their sermon because it's true. And know that I'm preaching this to myself as much as I'm preaching it to you. Theology can get a little uncomfortable sometimes. We can't play this blame game. The Bible over and over and over and over and over describes God as holy, just, righteous, sovereign. So what does that do for us? Well, We start to think, well, God is perfectly capable of preventing evil, right? He could do it. He's powerful enough to stop it and I continue to read my Bible, I know that he would like the universe to not contain evil because he's holy and perfect. He can't look on sin. So why does he allow it? I think that's the question we're really struggling with. Why does God allow all the tragedies in this world? Well, let's try to be practical. Let's just start exploring some alternatives. What are the other options for how God could rule the world? Well, he could just make it where people can't sin, right? I've heard that suggestion before. What if God made it where we couldn't sin? Well, then we wouldn't be people. (laughs) We'd be robots, right? He'd be programming us like machines. We wouldn't have the ability to choose right or wrong. And if that's the way God wired us, what's the biggest catastrophe there? We wouldn't be able to have relationships. Robots, machines don't have relationships, and God created us for relationship. It's the way he made us. He created Adam and Eve innocent. They had the ability to choose good or evil. They got to choose whether they're going to respond with trust and love or disobey and break the order. If we read the book, we know they choose to disobey. And that action had consequences, right? That action created the environment we live in today where we get to choose our actions. We don't always get to choose our consequences. And for sure, our choices now impact people all around us, just like Adam and Eve's choice did. So do we want to be robots? Do we want to be programmed so we can't sin? We have to be okay with never having a relationship then also. Okay, I don't like that option. James, are there other options? Well, God could supernaturally act. God could just intervene and erase all evil 100% of the time as soon as it happened, right? He could just sovereignly do that. He could stop every drunk driver from causing an accident that would take a life. He could stop every person who's addicted to whatever thing they're addicted to from making an an action that would cause someone harm, themselves or others. He could stop every high school bully from picking on a weaker kid or a brainy kid or a kid who looks different, right? He could do that, and we consider that option. We go, well, that sounds pretty good. I think that sounds good on paper. What's the problem there? We wouldn't like it the moment God tried to infringe on something we want to do. We want God to stop horrible evil actions, but I kind of like to break the speed limit, (laughs) God. Can I still do that? I want God to stop people from robbing banks and stuff, but i cheat a little on my taxes, just a little. Do I want God to stop that? Should God stop all evil or just the things I think are evil? Where's the line? Who draws the line? God, I want you to stop people from being able to have sexual affairs. I think those are really, really bad. But when I watch stuff on Netflix, I like it when they do because it's kind of good for the drama. We're about ourselves. Where are we going to draw the line? Do we see how tricky this is? What are the other options? Well, here, God, what I want you to do is just remove all evil from the planet. (laughs) There'd be nobody sitting in this room. (laughs) We'd all be gone, right? Scripture tells us. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. Now, I get it, the way we play their game and our This Well, some people are much, much more evil than me, right? And I'll, I have serial killers, to me, are worse than online trolls and bullies. But they're both causing evil. They're both causing harm to others. So God didn't choose any of those options. What did he do? He created a real world where our real choices have real consequences. In this real world, our actions affect others. Isn't that what we saw with Adam and Eve's choice to sin? Every person born since then has this imputed sin nature. There's going to come a day when God will judge all the sin in the world. There's going to come a day, it's bifocals pretty far away, where he's going to make all things new. Well, I I think it's far away. It could happen tomorrow. (laughs) It could happen right now. (laughs) But we've been waiting for it for a while. And the reality is we should be thankful that God is delaying that judgment. But he's doing that on purpose too. Why? Because he's a God of order. He's not a God of confusion. This is what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. He's patient towards us. Why? Because he's not wishing for anybody to perish. He wants everybody to come to repentance. He wants everybody to be saved. God doesn't like sin. God wants everybody to repent of their sin. He wants everybody to begin an eternal relationship with him. But church, until that time, whenever it is when Jesus comes back, God is very concerned about evil. And we see that from his word. As part of his plan, as part of his order in this world, the Bible tells us he appoints governments to provide justice. He he appoints people to protect innocent people from evil. Over and over and over in the Bible, we see severe consequences for those who commit Evil acts. It's not like God is turning a blind eye towards evil. Instead, what happens when we get to choose our own way is that we are responsible for evil. And then we blame God for not doing anything about it. He is doing something about it. I guarantee you this. He is restraining evil, or this world would look even worse than it does. But this is where we really struggle. This, I think, is the the key we don't understand how God uses evil. We don't understand how he leverages evil to bring about his plan, to bring about his purpose. I already told you you got to read Job. You want some more reading? If you, this is a much shorter one. If you have the opportunity on your own this week, read the book of Habakkuk, Old Testament book, perfect example of this. Because in the text in Habakkuk, God raises up the nation of Babylon. If you know anything about history, the Babylonians were bad people fierce, horrible, wicked nation. It says in the text, God raises them up, why? To go beat up his people. To pronounce judgment on his own people. Now I read the book of Habakkuk, I gotta be honest, I don't like it. (laughs) But I'm not in charge. Praise the Lord. A lot of people like Romans 8, 28. Some people say this is their favorite verse. I love it. Paul writes this, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And we read that and we like it because we think, well, look, God works good things together for good. That's not what the verse says. What does it say? He works all things together for good. What does that mean? That means some good stuff. And that means some of this stuff. That means the trials and the tragedies. He uses all those things. That's what he does in the book of Habakkuk. He does it actually, honestly, often in Old Testament history. In the book of Habakkuk, God brings judgment on his people, on Israel, because they are idolatrous. They're acting wickedly. So he brings judgment. He just uses a more wicked nation to do it. And I don't like it. But it's a great book to study because God's people ask the question. I'm paraphrasing, but they literally say, God, how could you do that? How could you use a nation that's more wicked than us to judge us? We're not that wicked. Now in chapter two, God promises that Babylon's gonna get theirs in the end, and I kinda like that, but I'm sinful. But but Habakkuk concludes with, I think, the most incredible profession of faith, period, in God's sovereign plan. I think this is one of the most incredible passages in all of scripture. If you don't read all of Habakkuk, it's not that long. Read chapter three, start in verse 16. This is what we see. I heard, and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble. What's causing all this anxiety? He says, because I must wait quietly for the days of distress. I'm gonna wait quietly for the people to arise who will invade us. Spoiler alert, it's gonna be the Babylonians, right? We we understand what the Babylonians are doing. In the midst of that trial, Knowing that struggle is coming, what do we see in verse 17? Though the fig trees should not blossom, there be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. We think about how things would look if we're being persecuted, if tragedies are coming upon us. For a farmer, this is bad news, right? This is what's gonna happen when the Babylonians invade. Yet Verse 18 says, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He's made my feet like hinds feet. He makes me walk on high places. Church, I think this is the picture. Instead of blaming God for evil choices we make. Because God's people did this in Habakkuk. We understand, right? They were participating in the idolatry. Instead of playing the blame game, instead of asking God, why? Why do the tragedies happen? Why do these trials occur? Habakkuk is willing to learn. Habakkuk is willing to endure. He's willing to persevere and still give God the glory. He still recognizes God is in control. He understands that he works all things together for good, not just good things. For those people he is called according to his purpose. What's his purpose? He wants to save us. God wants to save his people in the book of Habakkuk. So even though he provides consequences through these evil Babylonians, he does it so they'll wind up in that spot where Habakkuk is in chapter three. Church, I think that's the way we're supposed to look at Luke 21. I think Jesus is explaining how our sovereign God is at work even when it looks like things are way out of control. Because he has a plan. He has a purpose for us. It's a plan for us to prosper. It's a plan that's about eternal relationship. And we see at the close in verses 20 to 24, God is going to righteously judge those because he is the righteous judge. Who's he going to judge? Everybody who rejects Jesus. Throughout history, doesn't matter if you're in the way, way far off bucket or the way real close bucket, he's going to judge everybody. That's guaranteed. That's how he explains it, starting in verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. He's been telling this story for a long time, a lot of prophecy in this. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days for there's going to be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people and they'll fall by the edge of the sword and they'll be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. How long is that going to happen? Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. When will the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled? I don't know. I don't know that we can know says when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies is he talking about 586 BC when the guess what Babylonians came in and wiped them out or is he talking about 70 AD when the Roman general Titus came in and and Josephus again gives us so much of this history I think this number has got to be high but I don't know Josephus says that Titus came in and slaughtered 1.1 million Jews is that what it's talking about Or is it in the way, way far off Bifocal's Lens it's talking about something that Zechariah prophesies for when the Gentiles, and that just means non-Jewish people, are going to come in and dominate Jerusalem. Which one of these is it talking about? I don't know. I know the big picture is God judges everyone who rejects Jesus from the beginning of time until the end. And so the application question becomes, how are we supposed to live today? in this chaotic world that we live in that's not chaotic from God's viewpoint because he's in control. How are we supposed to live until Jesus comes back? Well, this is one of those passages I think that informs us we're supposed to stand firm. We're supposed to see the trials and the tragedies as opportunities to trust in God's sovereignty, even in the face of persecution. I would say especially when we're faced with trials. Even in the face of political or national oppression, in the face of natural climate disasters, we live in a world right now, all you got to do is be paying attention to the news. It's war every day. That's what we're seeing. Before the war came, what you saw almost every other day was climate change is going to destroy the world. There's earthquakes and global warming and all, all these things. We live in that world. Do we see those tragedies as opportunities to be bold with our faith? If somebody says, I think God has removed his hand from the world, do we see the opportunity to go, no, even in the midst of these trials, he's still sovereign. Wouldn't that be incredible if we leaned in and said, you know, God doesn't work just good things together for good. He works all things together for good. Does that sound too hard to do? I think we understand God doesn't just work in good things. He works in all things. Let me close with this. I love this story. It happened many, many years ago in France. 1818, a young boy, you read his story, and we call him Lewis in America. He would have been Louis. He was nine years old. His father was a harness maker. And back in the day before modern equipment and machinery, what he would do is he had a hammer and a nail punch, and he would create these ornate designs in leather, and they would be used as harnesses for the horses that would pull the wagons and the carts. And he was very skilled at what he did. He did a great job. He was an artist, truly, in it. And young Louis would watch his father work, and one day he said to him, he said, Dad, someday I want to be a harness maker. I want to work just like you. And the dad said, well, why not now? Let's get you started. And so he, he drew out a pattern on some leather and he laid it out and he gave him the hole punch and he gave him a hammer, a little nine-year-old boy. And he said, be careful when you strike the nail punch because you don't want it to, to fly back and hit you and you, you don't want to hit your hand with a hammer. He's giving them all the warnings, you know. And this young nine-year-old boy takes his first blow with a hammer and hits the nail punch and it pops back up and it hits him in the right eye and he goes blind immediately. Nine years old. So he moves on and it turns out a couple years later, he's 11, 12 years old. He has a disease. He has some macular degeneration. He loses sight in his left eye. Now here's a kid who's 11, 12 years old, completely blind. Fast forward a couple years, he's sitting there at his family home. He's out in the garden. Some friends come over to try and entertain him. And one of the kids hands him a pine cone. And this young blind boy starts feeling the texture of this pine cone. And an idea sparks in his head, and he gets real excited. He's very enthusiastic about this. And he goes up to his room, and he starts developing an alphabet based on touch and feel. Boy, his name was Louis Braille. Developed a system that allows all blind people now the opportunity to be able to read, to interpret the written word. Did that come from a good thing or did that come from a tragedy? An accident, truly an accident. And then the result of sin, a medical condition, allowed this young boy to open up a whole new avenue of opportunity for everybody who's blind. Does God only work good things for good? Or does he work all things for good? Let me make it a little more personal. Will we consider it pure joy when we face trials? Or are we going to play the blame game? I pray that we trust God as sovereign in all things. Amen? I love you guys. Let's pray. Daddy, help us to learn the lessons from your word. Some of the lessons are hard. This so one today is hard. If we really want to spend a lot of time studying all the circumstances, the things going on in this passage, we can, we can muddy the waters a little bit trying to figure out what particular things are happening through which view of our bifocals. But, but the reality is the application, I think, is more important. Do we trust that you're a God of order? Do we trust that when you look at the world right now, you don't see it as chaotic and confusing. You see things that must happen in order to bring about your perfect will. You see trials and tragedies that happen as things that allow us to grow and endure and persevere and become more and more and more of who you want us to be. God, can we have that viewpoint? Can we have your viewpoint? I think we need it, Lord. Help us. Help us to be able to trust not in ourselves but to lean in on you in all things. God, we love you and we praise you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to give to our ministry, please check out our website at lewistonocc.org. And don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast, as well as our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, so you're always up to date with what's going on here at Orchards Community Church. Take care, and God bless.